Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is the second part of a two-part series on understanding the Old Testament law. Today, we'll get into the New Testament teaching on how Christians should interpret the Old Testament law and apply it to their lives today. I recommend listening to the first part from last time if you haven't heard it yet. All right, let's get to it. We're talking about the Old Testament law and understanding the Old Testament law. We want to comprehend it. We want to just not just gloss it over or say something cute about it and then ignore it for the rest of our lives. We want to actually get it and understand it and know how to apply it into our lives as Christians, as New Testament believers. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, last week we said, hey, the Old Testament law was not merely about morals. These are just some bullet points from last week. Morals, morality predates the law. The law was about more than just morality. It was a governmental law. It involved moral truths, yes, but it also had civil regulations, criminal punishments, and ceremonial laws concerning uh, being clean and unclean and what to do with sin and how to get right with God through sacrifice and things like that. It was also limited. It was not for all people. Unlike Sharia law in Islam, which they're supposed to spread around the whole world in the name of Islam, the Torah or the Old Testament law was only for Israel and was not even supposed to be spread into every other nation. It was just for Jews living in Israel and the strangers who, in, who lived in Israel who were immigrants. In other words, they, they became uh, citizens of Israel. It was for them as well. Um, the Old Testament is constantly quoted out of context to attack Christians. And we dealt with that last week as well. And so now we're going to move forward to what we're doing today. And today is this, now that we've sort of had a Jewish view of the Old Testament law, looking at it last week, now we're going to say, now what is a Christian view of it? What do I, seeing it through the eyes of the New Testament, seeing through the lens of who Jesus is, how do I view the Old Testament law? Uh, what impact did Jesus have on the Old Testament law? We'll talk about that. How did the early church handle the Old Testament law? Um, what New Testament teachings help us to know how to apply the Old Testament law to our lives? So how do I, how do I take when I read something in Leviticus, what do I do with it? Um, and how can I get the most out of my own reading of the Old Testament law? Cause I love the word of God and I, I want to, I want to like find the, the, the gold nuggets there. I don't just want to walk past them and think nothing's there. So the main goal here is to honor God and obey him completely. And I'll say this flat out. If God told me, Mike, I want you to obey the Old Testament law in, in, in his, the, your fullest capacity. So you have to do this, do this, do this, don't eat this anymore, don't have these practices anymore. I would do it. I mean, he's God. And this would not be a bad thing. This would just be what he's telling us to do. But the question we have is, is that what he's telling us to do? So I'm, I'm willing to do it. But there's a clear New Testament case that says no. That is, in fact, not what he's telling us to do. So let's, um, let's get into it. So in John 1, 17, it says this. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the but there is added by translators. Um, but if you so if you take that out, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You can even see without it, there is a contrast here. We're getting a contrast of what came through Moses and what came through Jesus. Rules came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I think that that kind of like casts the general theme for how the New Testament is going to look at the law of Moses and then Jesus, that there was a, here was the law and then Jesus shows up and things change. So I want to 
go through a ton of scriptures today. There's going to be a lot because there are a ton of scriptures that deal with this topic. So let's start with Romans chapter four. Turn over there for me. One of the main points the New, the New Testament makes about the Old Testament, God bless you, is that the Old Testament law was not something that was ever supposed to save you from your sins and bring you eternal life. So follow me here. Romans is being written. Paul's like preaching the full gospel, including from the Old Testament on. And he says in Romans 4.1, <clears throat> What then shall we say, or what, yeah, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh, the, the works of the flesh or the works of the law? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And this is quoted from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Paul is making a, a, he's actually giving us a New Testament Bible study on an Old Testament passage. In Genesis 15, hundreds of years before the law was ever given, God simply tells Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. It says Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So he had righteousness by what? Faith. He believed and he was righteous. That sounds like it's like New Testament teaching. Well, it is, but it's also Old Testament teaching. Abraham's the father of faith and he's, he's the example for all Jews and he just believes God and he's given righteousness. This, this should, you know, cause the Jews of Jesus' day to spin. This is why Jesus was like, hey, if you heard, if you listen to Moses, you'd believe in me. But they just kind of skipped over these things and they made the law something that made them righteous instead of realizing its actual purpose. So the next thing he says is a philosophical statement. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Um, this goes right along with Romans eleven six, which I'll quote to you. If by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This is actually a really important biblical concept. You either get saved by grace or by works, but not by some mixture of the two. That's the point here. So verse, I'll read verse 4 again. Follow with me here. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You are owed salvation if you work for it. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So then, like I said, the, the, the sister verse of that's Romans eleven six, And uh, I encourage you to have that ready because when you encounter, whether it's Catholic theology or Mormon theology or Jehovah's Witness theology, this verse along with Romans eleven six, it just completely blows it out of the water. You don't get to mix grace and works. It's one or the other. Either you're saved by grace or you're saved by works, but, but it's not both. So by saying this, he's saying, don't, don't tell me Abraham was justified by faith and works. The Bible says he was justified by his faith. Period. You don't get to add works to that, like hindsight. Oh yeah, faith um, and good stuff that he does. Verse six, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the, from works. So now we're going to talk about David, another biblical icon to the Jew. Abraham was saved by grace, by, by faith, I should say, given righteousness. And now David is being saved. And the point here is, uh, grace actually blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
This is a quote of Psalm 51, verse 1, and it's the psalm after David committed murder and adultery. And this is really important. The Old Testament law, while it had sacrifices, had no sacrifice for murder and adultery. It didn't have a sacrifice for every type of sin, right? He, there were certain sins where God's like, pull him right off of my altar and take him out and stone him. He's like, no, there's no, there's no redemption for that. He's, he's, he's going down. Um, now, Jesus, we find, has a sacrifice for, for that kind of sin. And that's what David's appealing to. He's not appealing to the law in Psalm 51. In fact, it, later in the psalm, he, to prove he's not looking to the law, in verse 16 of Psalm 51, he says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. David's like, this is not a sacrifice issue. I just need your grace. I can't go to the temple and offer some special sacrifice or the tabernacle at his time. I can't do this. The, the blood of bulls and goats here is not going to save me. It's not going to bring it. It's not going to bring it back. So you could spend all day in Romans four studying it. And it's awesome because Paul does not just say, Hey, here's the gospel saved by faith. He goes, Here's the Old Testament foundation for the gospel of being saved by faith apart from works. Pretty excited. He's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. He's showing the foundation for it. So that Jesus didn't change things. He fulfilled them. There's a difference. So the conclusion here is the Old Testament law never gave eternal life. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a passage that teaches it does. Why? Because the Old Testament law was weakened through sin. Because all have sinned. In fact, this gets to the question of why then is the law given? If the law is not to, to get me to heaven, then what is the purpose of the law? Well, first, if the law is just to get you to heaven, then why is it only given to Israel? Only Jews go to heaven? No Gentiles go? But wait a minute. Abraham, he didn't even have the law and he was saved. And he was saved by believing. David broke the law and should be condemned, but he was forgiven just by grace. And so we don't have a case for it being that. Um, so now if you would flip, flip or just flip to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read a big chunk of Galatians here because um, Galatians is very much about this very issue. The church in Galatia was being invaded by these, they called them Judaizers. And what these guys did was they were Jews, which is not bad, by the way. I'm not coming against Jews here. Jews are, I love Jews. They're, they're great, which is like I love Irish people or whatever. But the point here is these particular Jews came from Jerusalem, went to Galatia, pretended they had authority from the Jerusalem apostles and said to the Jews in Galatia, you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. So here we have a really good case for this is very much about um, that. This letter Galatians is very much about this issue we're dealing with today. How do I understand and then apply the Old Testament law. Galatians 3.19, it says, What purpose then does the law serve? Why was it given? It was added because of transgressions till, notice there's a limit of how long the law is supposed to be around, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now the seed is of course talking about Jesus. We have this prophecy in Genesis uh, chapter 3 where God says, uh, Eve, your seed will crush the serpent's head. This is talking about Jesus. Then we have later, Abraham, your seed in him, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then David about his descendants. And so this promise of the seed is not about the law. This comes before the law. And, it's, and so then the law was given temporarily until the seed, Jesus, shows up. 
till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. You hear that? If it was possible to be saved by your works, then the law would be the way to do it. Well, why is it impossible to be saved by my works? Because everyone has sinned. That's the conclusion there. So then what purpose is the law? To point out that everyone has sinned. This is a valuable purpose. Um, especially since repentance is the key to a person turning to Christ, the law is meant to bring them to a place of repentance. If there, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. So it's talking about that season when the law was, was there. We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, here's the conclusion of all that, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Obviously, the tutor here is the law. The law was our tutor, and now we're no longer under the tutor. So is it safe to say we are no longer under the law? I think so. We are no longer under the law. Now, there's a lot there about mediator and stuff like that, but I'm just trying to point out especially the topics that really are relevant for what we're saying here. So as we keep reading, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Notice it doesn't say, in Christ, everyone's a Jew. If, if we were to obey the law, that's what I would expect it to say. When you're in Christ, you're all Jews. We're grafted in. We get, we, get the, we get the concept that we're grafted in, but that doesn't make us all Jews. But it does make us all sons of Abraham. But it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, but you're sons of Abraham because you have the same faith as Abraham had, as you put all these different scripture passages together. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there's this, this uh, concept of a tutor, and then we're being told we're no longer under the tutor because we're adopted now as children, and he's going to continue this thought now in chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, that would be us, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's master of all. He's going to inherit everything, but yet everyone tells him what to do. I mean, you might, maybe you're going to inherit the, all of the, the nation and you're the king, you're the next king. But when you're four years old, everyone tells you what to do. That's just the nature of it. You're like, you're like a slave. Everyone just tells you, bosses you around. But verse two is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. I think this phrase, the elements of the world, is a reference to the clean, unclean sacrifices, tabernacle, all this, all this sort of um, the shadow elements of the law that we see that, that Israel was under. Verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law 
to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. These verses probably mean a lot to you, especially Abba, Father. I love that that scripture. I've written a song on it, you know, and it's just really, oh, Abba, Father. I love that. But in context, what it's saying is, because you're his son and you're his heir, and that, that tutor was a temporary thing, and now the, you're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the tutor of the law. The law was added because of sin. It was added because man is sinful, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But it was a temporary thing. That's the main point Galatians is making here. The law was a temporary thing, and when you come to Christ, you no longer need it. I shouldn't say it's not helpful to know it. It's no longer necessary for a Christian to have the word. I'm saying you no longer need to be under the law, under the bondage of the law, under the commitment to obey all the Old Testament laws that were specifically to Israel. Then in Galatians 5, after talking about our liberty from the law, he tells them, speaking of application, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And in case you're not sure what he means, is the yoke the law? Is it law? He's saying stand fast in your liberty, freedom from the law. Well, verse two, he says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, when a, a Gentile was to say, hey, I want to come under the law and be a Gentile who is now converted to be a Jew, he would do a specific act that was very uncomfortable. He'd be circumcised. And so these Judaizers were like, get circumcised and obey the law. And Paul's like, hey, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing because you're saying, I want to work my way to heaven and you're, you're, you're giving up Christ. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. One of the, the main points we made last week was that if you want to obey the law, you have to take it as a, as a whole. You can't just pick random laws and obey them and ignore other ones. It's not how it was given. Someone who picks random laws of a country, obeys them, and ignores other ones is what we call a criminal. And they go to prison or, or worse. It depends on what, which ones they decide to break. So for those who are telling Christians, be under the law, be under the law, obey the law, you have to observe the Old Testament law, it's like, then you better do all of it. Because if, if you're going to do it, you got to do it all. It's, it's the whole thing or, or, none, or none of it. That's, those are the options. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ, become a stranger from Jesus. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Stand in the liberty. In other words, don't go back to the laws. In verse 3, he goes, hey, if you want the law, you have to take all of the law. Another main point we just read is if you, wanna, um, if you want to be saved by the law, well, then you don't get to be saved by Jesus. If you want works, you don't get, you don't get grace. And then what really matters now is faith working through love. That's the point. Now, before we go on looking more about um, the epistles and what they say, I want to actually go to Jesus and what he said when he shows up on the scene. And it's in his most famous sermon. Anybody know what it is? 
the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. So please turn there, Matthew 5, and we're going to look at Jesus' description of his interaction or his interplay with the law. I would like to point this out. There are groups, as you're flipping there, there are groups out there and people out there who say we are, as Christians, we should be under the law. We should submit under the law and it's good to obey it. Usually they'll say you're not saved by it, but you should obey it like God wants you to. But that's not what we read, is it? He doesn't say you're not justified by it, but obey it anyways. He just straight up says you're not under it. I mean, they were never saved by the law. But they were under the tutor of the law, not for salvation, but for lessons. And then now we're delivered. We're no longer under the tutor. So I'm no longer, it's no longer necessary. And um, what I've noticed is I've tried to do research and look at what, what do the people say who say as Christians, I should be under the law, is they talk about random verses in the New and Old Testament, but they ignore these clear, thorough teaching passages about the law. They just ignore them completely. And that was what shocked me was like, I, th- I thought, what do they say about this? And the answer was they don't, they just ignore it. They don't address it. They just quote James and then they quote this out of context and then they go, Oh, that means, that means Torah. But you're like, but there's clear teaching. So keep your eyes out for that. If you interact with somebody, take them to Galatians chapter three and, well, and just read it with them. Just start reading through it, you know? Um, so in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus says this. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, for I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I hear this same passage quoted by people on both sides of the fence. It's interesting. And so here's how I would quote it if I was going to tell you we should observe the law. I would, I would, I would focus on Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. You act like he's going to just, he was going to destroy them. No, he came to fulfill them. And they'll say, and rabbinically, the, the rabbis would say to fulfill the law was to teach it fully. And Jesus came to teach it fully. So he's teaching us obey the law. Then they will go on to say something like, verse 19, um, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches men to do so will be called least, but whoever obeys and teaches them will be called great. And say, see, therefore, you, you should be teaching. You should be teaching these commands. But now let me point out a couple other things. Verse 17, right? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, first off, he mentions the law and the prophets here. It's not just the law, it's both. And he says he came to fulfill. Now put that in context of Matthew and in context of the rest of, rest of what Jesus says. He goes, wasn't it necessary that the scriptures be fulfilled and that the Messiah suffer and die and rise again on the third day? His description of fulfillment was not just teaching it. He was actually going to do it. So Jesus's use of the word fulfillment, unlike rabbis of his age, was something much better. And like a lot of things, Jesus disagreed with people of his age. <laughs> And we shouldn't use them to interpret him. (laughs) We should probably use him to judge what they said. Then he says this in verse 18, for surely I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Wait a minute. 
things are going to pass from the law when they get fulfilled. This is not a teaching that this law is permanent for every people of every age of every time. He's actually saying, don't get confused. I'm not destroying it. I'm fulfilling it. Nothing will pass from it till it's all fulfilled. And so we see the fulfillment of it. Um, so here's the point. Uh, he didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. So we should not think that something's wrong with the law. In fact, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is accomplishes what the Old Testament law was all about. And this is actually how the Old Testament is applied to Jesus. I mean, he, he says, I am fulfilling it. He, he's fulfilling the law and the prophets. This is like a culmination. Nobody else has done this before. There's a shifting. There's a turning of a corner with this moment. Jesus fulfills the, the, fulfills the law. And I think that we can see this through several different things. Um, the purpose of the law being to lead us to Christ. He fulfills it through symbolism. There's these teachings where we have the, um, the temple where Jesus speaks of the temple of his body and relates himself to the temple it's itself. There's the things where Jesus relates himself to being the bronze serpent as Moses held up the bronze serpent. So the son of man must be lifted up. So he speaks of himself like being the fulfillment. I'll, I'll offer you no sign, but the sign of the prophet Jonah, who is three days, three days and nights in the belly of a fish. So the son of man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. That there's this fulfillment in pictures through symbolism. There's also fulfillment through principles that God is holy and that the only way to approach God is by being holy. I and mean, you have to, you know, be fully holy to, to be near God who can dwell in the house of God. And Jesus fulfills that. He accomplishes it through his own holiness. It also shows the unreachable standard. The, the law itself was supposed to tell us how hard it was for humans like us to reach God, kind of like what Jesus did with the law when he met the, uh, the rich young ruler. And he says to him, you know, he goes, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what works do I have to do to, to save myself through works? And he goes, oh, you know, obey the law, love God, love your neighbor. And, you know, he just starts telling him the commandments and the guy, he goes, oh, I've done all this from my youth. <laughs> and then we all laugh at the guy. We're like, you really don't know? Or you're just lying. Like one or the other. You, maybe you really don't know. You really think you're righteous. And he goes, okay, well, one thing you're missing. Go sell what you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the man went, he didn't go sell. He went away sad because probably he loved money and found that he had, he had a heart issue. He just was ignoring it and Jesus kind of pointed it out. So the law is meant to point out those heart issues. Well, let's look at that concept. Romans 10, 5. We'll come back to how Jesus fulfilled the law a little bit later. But let's look at the concept of... Um, uh, the purpose of the Old Testament law in sort of pointing out our sins. Romans 10.5 says this. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. Romans 10.5, it speaks, this is the righteousness of works of the law. If you do it, you'll live. And if you don't, you die. It's not like, you can just keep failing and go, I'm going to try harder next time, Lord. That's not how the law works. The law's purpose, in a sense, was to condemn us. And we get that, again, in Romans. Flip back to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. 3.19 of Romans. We know, or now we know, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all 
the world may become guilty before God. That the law is trying to say, hey, you're all guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law was intended to do, is to bring about the awareness of sin. That's why Jesus uses it in the rich young ruler. He uses the law to bring about the awareness of sin. This is why Ray Comfort's ministry is awesome, in that they go around and they're like, oh, you you think you're a good person. Let me take you through the good person test. And they give you the Ten Commandments to say, now you'll see your sins. And by the end, they're like, yeah, I am worried, (laughs) you know, because, and it's not as though we're making them sinners by showing them the law. Rather, we're showing them what's really there. We're showing them what's really there. I I just recently went to the chiropractor and he took an x-ray of my neck and then compared it. Later, I came back. He shows me the x-ray, compares it to a healthy neck. He's like, here's a healthy neck. It's got this curve. He's like, here's your neck. It's like straight. And I'm like, so what does that mean? I go, I I know, you know, I know my wife, she's lost apparently like 70% of her curve. That's what she was told when she had this done. And I said, how much have I lost? And he goes, you have no curve. You've lost it all. Your neck is actually beginning to go the wrong way. So now this is not, this is good news because now, now we know why I'm having pain and we can fix it. So it's good news. Actually, this is not bad. I'm not complaining. I'm like, woo, good. We're going to fix it. We're going to work on it. It's not like boohoo. But, um, but you see this x-ray was to show me what was wrong. And that's what the law does. It takes a look inside you and goes, oh, you're nasty. You are gross. You got problems. That's the purpose. That's a good thing that the law does. Romans 5.20 says this. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So even though the law brings about an awareness of sin, we have to know that, that Christ has an abundance of grace for us to cover these things. So it's not like we're supposed to see here that we're hopeless. Rather, we're to be driven to the only hope, Jesus. But the point of the law is to point out sin. Romans 7.13, it says this, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, the law. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. I mean, did sin get more sinful? No, no, that's not the point. The point is that I began to perceive sin for what it really is. The law says sin is sin. Not everybody fails. Everybody makes mistakes. No. My sins are wicked. And I've done evil things and I've done them for selfish reasons. And when I look into the law of God, oh my goodness. In fact, I like how Paul says he points out one particular law that really awakened his conscience. He goes, for until the law came, I didn't realize that coveting was so bad. Paul was like trying to be a good Pharisee, but he had ungodly desires in his heart that he was, he was fantasizing about. And so then he says, and then the law, when the law came, sin revived and I died. He's just saying, I, I, boom, my eyes became open. And then in Romans 7, that's what leads him to this, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? This is the purpose of the law, to make you go, I'm wretched. I need salvation. So that's the point. Um, another one of the purposes of the law is, is um, through, I don't know how else to put this, but through like pointing to Christ, through things like, say, a random verse that says something like, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then in the New Testament teaching, it grabs this verse and goes, see, Christ became a curse for us. The curse fell on him. And God sort of prepared us for it with that random Old Testament law. Cursed is everyone who, fall, who hangs upon a tree. 
Also, the law points to Christ uh, and helps us through training. The the Jew knew that there was a specific way in which sins might be forgiven. Something's got to die. Blood. Sacrifice blood. Sacrifice blood. Sacrifice blood. This was ingrained in their culture so that they might look upon Christ and when the time came, go like, oh, I very much think of this as the original Karate Kid style. Way before Mr. Miyagi was teaching him wax on, wax off, God was teaching the Jewish people Day of Atonement. He was teaching the Jewish people Passover lamb so that when when Jesus shows up on the scene, just like when all of a sudden Daniel's son's like, oh, I, I know karate, you know, and he's all excited about it. Yeah, Daniel's son. What? <laughs> that's what they called him. <laughs> but that's what Mr. Miyagi called him. He, he's the original karate kid back when you were not alive. So... <laughs> No, you weren't. You're like seven. So, don't make stuff up. So, I'm just kidding. That's my job, apparently. No. Um, so God, like, prepared them just like Daniel was prepared by Mr. Miyagi with this, with these these rituals that he would do that then became like, oh, now I know martial arts. And in the same way, like Jesus shows up on the scene, John the Baptist looks at him and he says to the Jewish mind who every year of their life celebrates Passover. Every time there's sin, there's sacrifice. He looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's like, oh, wax on is cur- the lamb of God. It's Jesus. And it just clicks. That's the point of, of the Old Testament law is to not only show us our need for Christ, but also to sort of train us to receive the truth of Christ. Because if Jesus just showed up on the scene, hey, here's the Messiah. What Messiah were you talking about? He'd just be another imposter. At least he'd be received that way. But because the law prepared the way for Christ, it legitimized everything he did. Why does it need to be there? Why does it have to be there way before Jesus shows up to show that this was not contrived by man? This was a divine thing. So really neat. Um, So if I'm no longer under the law, then what am I under as a Christian? This is a really good question. And actually, the Bible answers this. And I think that as as Christians, many of us don't even realize this. But you'll start to go, hey, I knew that. You're going to get waxed on and off in a second here. Um, I know. (laughs) Now, the Old Testament, in fact, anybody know what another word is for testament, what a synonym is for that word? A covenant. We call our Old Testament the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Then we have our New Testament, our New Covenant. Now, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was specifically referring to the Mosaic Covenant, where Israel was under these laws, and they were they were the people of God, and had all these all these wonderful laws, good laws. Then the New Covenant is what we where we are under Christ. Or actually, it's interesting how they're described as being under the law, and we're described as being in Christ. It's just the very nature of the yoke of bondage of the law. And then he he doesn't go, hey, I will yoke you with my, he's like, come take my yoke. You'll be yoked with me. It'll be like it's relationship, a relationship thing. It's a different thing. So the, a covenant's a contract between two parties. Um, it's different than what God said to Adam and Eve. Uh, this was a covenant for all men. He's like, hey, be fruitful or promised all men. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He just, that goes to everybody. Um, what God said to Noah after the flood goes to everybody. He says, I'll never destroy the earth again. Here's my rainbow. This is what it means. I'll never flood the earth like that again. That's what it means. That's what it means. <laughs> the rainbow. And then... He tells them things like, if a man strikes a man, then by man his blood will be shed. 
So he's legitimizing uh, capital punishment and he institutes the government. And there's actually some cool things that happen there that affect all of us. But then when he talks to Abraham, he makes a promise about the seed. And then 400 years later, we get the Mosaic covenant, not between God and man, between God and Israel. Right. But the Old Testament, even in their covenant, their, their deal with God, this, this obedience for blessings covenant of the law, God promises them about a new covenant that there's coming a day where there'll be a whole new deal. And we can read about it in Jeremiah 31. So if, if you'd like to turn there, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. And he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So there'll be a new covenant. And he specifically says, it's not the same as the old covenant. This is different than the Mosaic law. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. This covenant is about deep, personal, intimate relationship with God where your intern, your internals are changed so that what pleases God is coming from within you instead of from without from the law. From the least of them to the greatest says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This new covenant is described in Jeremiah 31 and again talked about by Jesus in the Gospels where he talks about the new covenant. And then in, uh, that's repeated, what Jesus' words in the, in, the, in the three of the Gospels are repeated in 1 Corinthians 11. So flip to 1 Corinthians 11. We see we have an Old Testament foundation for this idea of the new, the new covenant. Now let's look at the New Testament fulfillment of it. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This new covenant was established by Jesus. He's like, hey, you have the Mosaic covenant. I've got a new covenant for you. I'm under the new covenant. I'm not under the law. I'm in Christ. This new covenant has a is a new deal. <laughs> this is how I get saved. This is where all my righteousness comes from. And this is what the old covenant was all about. It was about, it was just to train us and lead us and teach us to prepare us for Christ. It was the tutor to deliver you to Christ. Now for some more new Testament teaching on this, uh, turn to Colossians chapter two, verse 14. Colossians two fourteen. And while you're flipping there, um, I'd like to read an Ephesians passage if I can find it here. 
Yeah, Ephesians 2.15. In fact, I'll read 2.14 and 15. It says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Um, that's a verse, you know, we, we have the song, the old song. He is our peace who has broken down every wall. That actually, the middle wall separation is a specific wall that was in the temple that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. You couldn't go past the court of the Gentiles because you had the middle wall of separation that was right there. So the Jews and Gentiles were separate. And it says he's uh, made both one, the Jew and Gentile, were both one in Christ, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So he's abolished in his flesh those 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 commandments, the the enmity specifically, which was the commandments. It was these these laws creating um, division between not only God and man, but also between Jew and Gentile. Nothing wrong with the law. It's a, it's us sinners that that give the law. It's it's killing power. <laughs> it's our sins. So in Colossians two fourteen, a similar passage says, "Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us." And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now you might go, Mike, are those handwriting of requirements? Is that the Old Testament law specifically? Well, look at his conclusion, his application of that fact. Verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. That's, those are all Old Testament law issues, aren't they? What you can eat, what you can drink, festivals, there was the, 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 the seven feasts. There was also the new moons and the activities that happened in Jewish times around those things. There was Sabbaths. There's multiple Sabbaths. There's the weekly Sabbath. There's the yearly Sabbath. The, the, after six years, there's a seventh year Sabbath. There's, um, then there's this, the seventh, the year of Jubilee, which was considered another type of Sabbath. So there's all these different Sabbaths, you know, and he's like, let no one judge you according to these things. Why? Because Jesus took care of that on the cross. At the cross, there's a, there's a, you cross over from the Old Testament law into the new covenant. First um, Corinthians eight and Romans 14 also talk about this. It's basically up to your conscience as far as you want to, what you want to eat or what day you want to worship. It is not follow the Old Testament law. It's like, you don't want to eat that, don't eat that. Just eat it, just be unto the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. That's the point. And so Romans 8, Roman, I'm sorry, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, deal with that. So please flip back to Galatians 2. I think a study of the whole book of Galatians would be really wise about this issue if you're still confused. But I think by the end of this, you're good. <laughs> you will have a pretty solid foundation for not being able to be um, tripped up on this issue of the law. Now, in Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul tells us a story about how Peter showed up in Antioch. Remember, he's writing to the Galatians, but he's telling how Peter shows up in Antioch where there was a bunch of Jewish and Gentile Christians. And he says in verse 11, Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He openly rebuked Peter. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So this is just like an eating issue. It's like Jews aren't going to eat with Gentiles. This is part of the, the kosher thing. It's just about the laws. 
And Peter's like, oh, I was eating with the Gentiles. Like, hey, guys, you're accepted. You're embraced. You know, I'm not going to call unclean what God has called clean. And he's enjoying them and fellowshipping with them. And the Jews show up and he's like, okay, I don't want it. I don't want them to see me. And he, Peter was kind of caught in a, between a rock and a hard place, but he made a bad decision. And rather than take a stand on the grace of God, he went and started joining. And then Barnabas joined him with them. And Paul got up and was like, hey, don't be stupid. And he, he rebukes him. Why? It says, verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I think this is a great time to openly rebuke people when what they're doing is not straightforward about the gospel. Gospel issues, open open rebuke. Right? If it's some other issue that's like a minor issue, not as big, hey man, just wait. It doesn't, you don't need to make a big thing about it. It's not a big thing. But if it's the gospel, if it's how people go to heaven, it's a big enough deal to openly rebuke. Who says, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles, oh, he just got called out, <laughs> and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? This implies that Peter did not live in total obedience to the Old Testament law after he, after Pentecost, after he received the Spirit. Paul's like, you live as the Gentiles, not as a Jew. Now you're just pretending to live as a Jew. You're being a hypocrite. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. To build again or recraft the law into the Christian life. That's what he's talking about. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is the new covenant. I will be with you. You'll be my, I will be your God and you'll put my law on your heart. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So there's two things here. Not only, um, the two issues we're dealing with, not only are we told very clearly, you do not get saved through the law, but the next question is, but is it good to just obey it anyways? And this actual, this question came up in the early church. So there's another story in Acts chapter 15. Some of you are familiar with this. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It was the first gathering of church leaders that we're aware of to discuss like a particular tough issue. So in Acts 15 verse 1, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, so more guys coming from the Jerusalem area, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, in other words, they had a big fight, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They didn't think Paul and Barnabas were maybe authoritative enough. They thought, hey, these guys are from Israel area. Paul, why don't you go back over there and talk with the leaders in Israel and hash this out? Are we supposed to be circumcised? I like their heart because they're like, if we're supposed to be circumcised, then we'll get circumcised. Like, what do you, what do you want us to do? We're supposed to obey the law, we will. 
Verse three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, they're Pharisees in their background, but now they're saved, or they at least have intellectual belief, said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. This is really important. They should get circumcised. They should keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Hey, let's talk about it. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about with Cornelius. This Gentile who, who G, uh, Peter had a vision about unclean and clean animals. And then he went and he, he just started preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit just fell on them. And, and boom, God's obviously saving these people. So he goes, all right, well, let's baptize them. And this was all God's work when he was on the, on, on Simon, the roof of Simon the Tanner. It was all God's work in Peter to say, hey, Peter, I'm going to save the Gentiles by grace apart from the works of the law. It doesn't matter if they obey the law. And so, so Peter's like, hey, remember that? Verse eight, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Peter got the message of the law, didn't he? I can't do it, Lord. I'm not that good. I can't handle the holiness of it. I'm not going to walk in this perfection. And he's, he says, you're putting this yoke on them and it is wrong. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after that, after they had become silent, James answered saying, it's interesting here. James seems to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. Now, I don't care if leader was, if the leader was Peter, I don't care who it was personally, but it just seems to be James, which kind of goes against the whole idea that Peter was the first pope. Um, in fact, the Bible doesn't have any popes at all, <laughs> let alone Peter. But James gets up and he has the conclusion. Men and brethren, listen to me. Verse 14, Simon has declared, that's Peter, how God at the, at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So he quotes Old Testament to confirm it. After this, I will return and re will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. It was always planned for the Gentiles to get saved. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. For Moses has had uh, throughout many generations, those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and Silas. And interesting, nobody wanted to be called Judas anymore. So there's like Judas, who is called Barsabbas. Like he's like, he's got like a nickname because, oh gosh, I don't want to be called that. Um, they wrote this letter by them. Here's the letter. 
the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave you no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's it. Not circumcision, not the Old Testament law, just a few like advice, th pieces of advice. And you might go, well, Mike, what are these pieces of advice? In fact, I read one commentary who's like, hey, every one of those is found in the law. They're being told to obey the law. And I'm like, man, you're really straining at this. Like, did you not read the passage? They're not being told to obey the law. This is clear. Actually, all of these, these specific issues come from before the law. Um, what is asked? Okay, keep away from things strangled and from blood. In Genesis 10, God says to humanity, don't eat blood. Don't eat blood. Don't eat the, the, the life of the, of, is in the blood, and I don't want you to eat that. That's, that's not for you. Maybe because this is relation to Christ or for probably several good reasons. The point is, this is a pre-Mosaic thing that God has simply revealed about his will for mankind, not just for the law. I do think that this is wisdom and this is, we should obey this now. I should not be eating blood. This is weird. And I think that the whole vampirism stuff that some people actually engage in is an affront to God. Um, and, and also it's like creepy and weird. It's like not to mention those things. They're also told to avoid things offered to idols. In other words, not to participate in idolatry in even, even kind of like in a sketchy way. Like, am I, am I doing idolatry or not? I'm not sure. This is kind of sketchy. They're like, just avoid it. Just avoid it. That's just wisdom. And also to keep from sexual immorality. Now that moral truth is not just about the law. <laughs> so don't be involved. Don't do the thing God said not to do in Genesis 10. Right? Don't, don't play around with idolatry, which is, of course, a universal truth, not just in the law. And, of course, stay away from sexual immorality because God knows how we are. I mean, when Christians fall, it's probably more often than anything else because they got in some relationship they shouldn't have got in. And so um, then they give the reason why. They say, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Not you will be saved. This is not an issue of being saved. They're also answering the question, what should a Christian do? Not just what must a Christian do? They're like, here's good advice. Keep away from these things. This is not just based on the law. This is like a universal truth. Awesome. So um, we're not required to obey the law and we're not even desired to as Christians. This seems to be very clear New Testament teaching. Any question on that before I... Move on to something else for a second. Because now we go, if I'm not under the law, then, then what am I under? And the other question is, and what do I do with the law? What do I do with it? Because I don't just want to bench it. I want to I grow and learn and receive from God's word. So I have a quote from you from uh, a, uh, an article from uh, Santa Reason Great Ministry. Um, and it says this about this issue. Nothing that is in the Mosaic law applies to me as a Gentile in virtue of it being in the Mosaic law. I don't have to do it because it's in the law. 
No commandment is incumbent upon me in virtue of being part of the law. Here's an analogy. There is nothing in California law that applies to somebody living in Ohio. Ohio has its own statutes. There is a statute against murder in California. Does that mean since I'm not in California, it's okay to murder in Ohio? No, I'm not under the California statute, but I am under the Ohio statute. There are a lot of rules that apply in any situation, in any state. There are also laws and rules that are unique to a particular state's situation. So here's our question then. Well, if I'm not under the law, what am I under or what am I in? And, and the, the contrast the scripture gives us is the spirit versus the letter. There's the law externally coming and telling me what to do. Then there's the spirit after I'm saved, born again internally transforming my life, now walking in accordance with the Holy Spirit. So Romans 7, 6 talks about this. It says, but now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. It's Romans 7, 6. Um, Romans 7 then continues, and it talks about how the law was, would bring you to that place of saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then it's like, oh, I thank God through Jesus Christ, you know, he's my savior. Romans 8 then goes on to say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh under the law, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And Romans 6, 7, and 8 will make a lot more sense if you realize he's talking about the old and new covenants and the law and stuff like that. Um, this, this continues 2 Corinthians 3. I'll read a couple verses from there. He says, um, clearly, verse 2 Corinthians 3, 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, alluding to the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiencies from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills because it reveals my sin and shows me condemned, but the spirit gives life. So I'm under this new, this new, um, covenant in the new deal. And it's all about walking in the spirit. So what is, what is the Ohio law? So to speak, what is the new law for the Christian? It's walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's why there's so much emphasis given on walk in the spirit, put off the former works of the flesh, put on the works of the spirit. I am to walk in the spirit. My goal is not obey the law. My goal is walk in the spirit. Galatians six, after talking about how we're not under the law, Galatians five and six finally says, now the fruit of the spirit is, and it gives you, here's, here's what we are under. And so now will a lot of these things be the same as what I read in the law? Yes, but I'm not obeying it because it's in the law. I'm obeying it because this is according to the spirit of God. This is according to God's character and holiness. And this is what God wants in my life. So then that being answered, um, at least in principle, I mean, I think this is huge. If, if Christians would just walk around all day asking themselves one question, am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit right now? They wouldn't need the law because <laughs> that's, that's the point. He puts his law inside of us. I'll tell you what I want. It'll be right inside you. You walk in the spirit. So how do I interpret and apply the Old Testament law? Um, because I want to read it and get as much out of it as possible. 
2 Timothy 3, it says in verse 16 and 17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That would be the Old Testament law included. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I can get, I can learn instructions from it, right? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I don't just throw out like Leviticus and Ezekiel or and, um, Exodus. I don't just, I don't just chuck numbers and Deuteronomy. I look at them. And how do I look at them in light of Christ? That's how I look at them, in light of Christ. I look at them through the lens of who Jesus is. So, for instance, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal or eternal life. For God so loved the world, and he goes on, you know the rest of that verse. Jesus also said, So that the, the Jews answered and said, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Jesus is deliberately reaching into Old Testament things and saying, me, me, me. In fact, on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, he does this with the disciples. If there's one Bible study I wish I could sit in on, this would have been it, right? Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I do look for Jesus in the Old Testament. I look for him in the Old Testament law. He, Jesus also is quoted as saying in John 5, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. They're about me. He said in verse 45 there, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. They thought they could be saved by works, but again, the law condemns. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In Revelation, one of the angels turns and says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The whole point of prophecy is about Jesus. It's all about him. And the volume of the book is written of me. That's what Jesus said. So I look at all of the Old Testament to look for Jesus. He is the Passover lamb. He's a lamb of God who takes over the world. He's this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. He's constantly taking the Old Testament imagery and all the stuff that happens, even like the rock that was struck, and saying, yeah, that was me. That was me. That was me. That was me. So I should be encouraged to look for him in the Old Testament. Not to fabricate, but to look. Where has God planted the wax on, wax off stuff that I go, oh, I, get, you know, I see this in light of Christ. The apostles did this. In, um, in Hebrews, it talks about... Um, this in great detail it talks about how Jesus is, um, he's the high priest and he's the great sacrifice and he's, he's constantly, yeah, that's all about Jesus. So when I read the sacrifices, I'm reading about Jesus. Yes. That's the point. He's our great high priest. He is the priest according to Melchizedek, according to Hebrews seven, Melchizedek, what do you mean? King of righteousness, King of peace. Even the name of the guy speaks of Christ. That's cool. Um, in John one, it says that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He tabernacled. Why did you use that word, John? You know, because there are these wonderful, you know, go dig for nuggets, go into the mountain and, and get in there and get some gold. You know, he is the rock that was struck for Corinthians 10, four, 
that Jesus was struck and just as the water was the water came out of the rock so Christ was struck the feasts the feast where they they commemorated this water is where Jesus says anyone thirsts come let him drink of me and he says he's the water of life and so obviously Christ is doing that so i look for Jesus in symbols in the old testament but as i'm reading i also look for god's heart behind the law and this is what paul did when he talked about well paying ministers he um he mentions this in 1 corinthians 9 he says, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? He's like, what's God's real heart behind this law? That's what he's saying. And then he goes, his conclusion is, why do you think God would say don't muzzle the ox? Why would he say this? So we can look at the Old Testament and ask the question, why would he say that? What's the principle I learned behind this? What's God's heart behind it? And God's heart behind it is the worker's worthy of his wages. And so he says, hey, I, I deserve to be paid for what I do, Corinthians. But I don't because I just want to be a better witness to you. But he just wants to get the, the truth about it, you know. So we can learn from the law without being under the law. I think the term is principalize. Principalize what you read in the Old Testament law for your life and for the lives of those around you. You learn from God's heart, his heart for the fatherless and strangers. There are not only God's rules about the fatherless and stranger, but then in the Old Testament, he just straight up says, I love the fatherless. I love the stranger. That's not just Old Testament law. That's just true about God. And so it's still true about God today. We learn about his heart for the widow, for the poor. God's like, hey, you mess with the poor, I will kill you. Because I love the poor. And now, now, does that mean that under this current, if I mess with the poor, God will slay me? Like that? Well, that was part of the Mosaic law. You know, if then, the if then consequences. But it's still the truth about God's heart for the poor is still true. Because that's his heart helping others when you can. I mean, Deuteronomy 22, one, you could just read this. You shall, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So I could read that. And be like, I'm not under the law. And I don't know any people who own ox, oxen or oxes or oxoy or whatever they're called. Or I could look at it and say, what's God's heart behind this? God wanted them to help their neighbors out. That sounds like something he want me to do today too. Not because it's, the command of the law, because it's the heart of God revealed through the law. So you see, we look for God's heart. We look for principles. We also look for moral truths. I mean, I know we're not under the law. And um, someone says like, okay, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, but it also says you can't eat pork. So because you can't eat pork, therefore homosexuality is okay. And it also says do not murder. So since I can't eat pork, can I also murder? There are obviously moral truths that should be in everybody's minds that are revealed in the law, and it's not hard to tell where they are. <laughs> it's not that difficult to tell where they are. Um, the moral law did not begin with the Old Testament, and so it did not end with the Old Testament law. It, it's, it's just there's just morality. It's just true. We can learn from those morals. And here's an example of it. Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Listen to how he handles the Old Testament law. After telling them they're not under the law, he then learns something from the law for them. So he says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, this is a big theme in God's law. This is a big thing in God's heart. This is a big moral truth or principle for us to apply today as well, to love others. How about this? Deuteronomy 12, 31. 
Tell me what you get out of this. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now I hear this saying, Jews do not use human sacrifice the way these pagan religions do. But I also get a permanent principle from it. Because God tells us how he feels about what these Gentiles did. I hate what they did. So there's a, there's a, there's an overarching moral truth that's there as well. So you see how we just read it like this to aid this. You can actually look at how the new Testament speaks about the 10 commandments. They're all reiterated in some way or another. Every one of the 10 commandments, usually they get, they get, uh, I think more strict because you're looking at the heart behind the 10 commandment. They, they appear to be more strict anyways. So for instance, we're told, you know, the second commandment, do not, do not uh, make idols and worship them. And then in the New Testament, Colossians 3, 5, it says, covetousness is idolatry. And you're like, oh, you know, and it's like, whoa, this is even heavier and even deeper. And so we're getting the heart behind it because what? The law is the letter. And now we're going to be having it written on our hearts. And this is going to be in the spirit. Um, all 10 of the commandments are restated in the New Testament in one way, shape uh, or form. It's all there. But the Sabbath is specifically stated as something we do not have to obey. It's not, it doesn't say don't obey it or do obey it. It actually says, it's up to you. Romans 14. I just love that. God's like, yeah, you make your choice. But do you want to do it or not? He's like, just think about it. Here's a place where God's honestly like, search your heart and do what you want about this issue. And that's cool. And just do it unto the Lord. Pretty cool. Romans 14. And Colossians 2.16 on that. Um, but honoring parents, uh, do not murder. We're, we're told don't even hate. Jesus expounds this, you know, the heart behind it. And so we look for the heart behind the law. So this makes our study of the Old Testament very rich and very full and very neat and very fun because you're, you're, you're learning, you're growing. You're like, oh, look at that. Now I'm going to read something to you. I want you to try and apply it. So you guys take the principles we've taught and take this. Numbers 15 says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have a t the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember to do and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. How do I principalize this or, or what do I get? In fact, let's ask first, what's the direct application to the Jew? Put tassels on your clothes to remind you of the law of God. What's any principles that we, that we learn from this? We can be forgetful. Reminders are good. I have a coffee cup that says uh, pastor and it has a definition of a pastor is like one who shepherds and serves and, da, 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 and leads. And I like will use this cup and like every time I use it, I like read that and I'm like, Lord, you know, help me, help me fulfill the calling you placed in my life. I want to be this. I want to be humble. I want to serve. It's a really good reminder for me. I got this ring I wear every day, everywhere I go. It's a good reminder for me. And I'm like, hey, hey, God gave them reminders. That's kind of cool. Like these are good. Reminders are good. I also know that he gave them an overarching truth. He said, so you won't go the way of your evil hearts to which you're always inclined. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so maybe even that's the reason for it, you know. So we really can learn from something that would seem to be kind of like, that doesn't really apply. Not directly. But what principles are there that we can grow from?
So we don't find our rules for society and social laws. We were never intended to outside of Israel. Um, the early church didn't do this. They didn't preach it. Um, in fact, an example is 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's like, hey, there's a guy in your church who's sleeping with his father's wife. Now, the Old Testament consequence would be to stone the guy. But Paul says, here's the judgment. Ex- or Disfellowship him. Disfellowship him. And then later when he repents, he can enter back into the church. But because he's, he's continuing in sin, just disfellowship him. You see how he's actually, he's directly counseling them to not do what the Old Testament says to the Jews for their laws, but rather do this as the church. There is a difference. There is a difference. It's really consistent. And once you start to see it, you just see it everywhere. So, um, Another scripture, Numbers 18.21 says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Now here's the direct application. All the tithes go to the children of Levi. That's the direct application. Now if we're going to really be under the law, the church tithes, we've got to send them to Israel and be like postmark to the tribe of Levi. This is just, you see, it's just, it's unfathomable. You can't do this. You've got to be under all of it or none of it, and it's just, you can't do it. But the principle is, I think, those who do ministry have a precedence here that they should, if, if, they're, if their labors, massive amounts of labors are in ministry, that it's a precedence to take care of their, their physical needs. And that's also consistent with other teachings in the New Testament. So we go, yeah, that's a biblical principle. So you, what seems like, how does this apply to us? It's just right there. Really cool, actually. Well, hey, let's um, let's pray. I, I really hope this has helped you guys because it's a huge, ma- it's a massive topic. It really is, and um, there's so many scriptures that touch it that now with this information, I think as you read your New Testament, it'll just jump out to you. You'll be like, I didn't realize that was about that because you've read these passages and you you know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but you didn't realize this is in context of of the law condemning and bringing me to Christ where I'm free from that and now I'm walking in the newness of the spirit rather than the oldness of the letter, all this awesome stuff. But at the same time, I hope that this gets you more excited about the Old Testament um, to go and read it and get in there because it is written for our admonition. Even though the direct application was to Israel, there is there is current application to me as well as a in principles and in pictures and, and all this other stuff. So let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this group who has endured a very long <laughs> and uh, brain-bending message, Lord. But we, um, we pray for the fruit in our lives that we would be those who rightly communicate your word to others, answer the questions and difficulties that come up, and Lord, that we would simply know accurately what the Bible says so that we could be blessed and we can also communicate it to others. And, and Father, we just thank you for, uh, for Jesus. He has delivered us from the curse of the law that was really about the sin of the sin that's in us. Jesus, you saved us from ourselves. Now we want to walk in the newness of the spirit. And that's kind of what it comes down to. Keep us mindful to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh that this week, that even this day we would have constantly in our mind. Am I in the spirit or am I in the flesh? How am I walking now? In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for thinking biblically with me. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and I hope that this teaching has inspired you to love and learn from the law of Moses. Next time, we are tackling a heavy and controversial issue. Homosexuality has become a really important topic in our world and in the church today. The level of anger, 
confusion and misinformation surrounding the issue of homosexuality is at an all-time high. Some in the church feel the only recourse is to be silent on the topic. Others feel they need to embrace the gay lifestyle, even ordaining actively homosexual ministers and reinterpreting the Bible to fit this view. We will be unpacking this issue slowly, thoughtfully, and methodically. I won't be bashing anyone or speaking in anger, but I also won't compromise the truth. After this four-part series on homosexuality, you will be well-equipped to handle this issue. 